It was February 3rd through 6th, 1997. It was a Christian school, I think, like many others. Christian in name, full of apathetic, lukewarm students. And I'm not trying to judge all those schools that I do not know. I've just heard. And I've experienced. And every week, those students were invited into a chapel service. But one week out of the year, they did a special uh, week-long service. They called it a spiritual emphasis week. I think these days they call it uh, life change week. And they invite a speaker to come in, and for many students, it's like, well, there goes my second and third hour score, you know. We're in chapel, and, and, and we're gathered together, and we're singing, and we're listening to someone speak. That week was different. They invited a pastor uh, from New York City by the name of Tom Meharris. His ministry partner, his name was Billy Schneider. And they came into that school. And on Monday, it kind of seemed like just a normal chapel week, spiritual emphasis week. There was worship, student-led. Pastor Meharris spoke. It was was an okay message. Talking about sheep following the shepherd and hearing his voice. It was alright. Got you at a couple hours of class. Tuesday, it seemed like something was starting to happen. And it seemed like worship went a little longer than maybe they planned. And, and somehow we got out of another hour of class. What happened? You know, all right, really score. Straight to lunch. You know, th- th- that's a great way to do it. By Wednesday, it seemed to go even longer. And students were being invited to come forward and share with the student body what the Lord was doing in their hearts. And we started to hear stories. And people were getting saved. Now, granted, you weren't supposed to go to that school unless you were saved. But people were getting saved. And repenting of sin. The the young lady who was on my youth group's worship team stood in front of the student body and said, I have been practicing witchcraft for a number of months now. And I guess she was leading worship on the side. Shocking. And she said, the books are in my locker even now. And I'm ready to burn them. And I don't know if that's what sparked the idea, but students decided it was going to be a bonfire night. And we were going to invite people back in the evening, have a big fire, And you were going to bring whatever was standing between you and the Lord. If it was a physical thing, you were going to throw it in the fire. So people brought their their music that wasn't honoring and tossed it in. People brought books and tossed them in. Those witchcraft books burned as good as any other. One young man uh, 
pulled out his wallet and took out cash and threw it in. And I was like, no! <laughs> you know, you should have given that to the church or something. But, but he tossed the money in the fire and said, this is standing between me and the Lord. All right. All right. Is that a federal offense? I don't know. Is that, is that okay? I don't even know if you're supposed to be able to do that. But he did it. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the look on his face when he tossed it in. And as for me, I had been going through the years in high school, uh, plugging in at youth group, at my youth pastor small group study, and oh my, was I spiritual. But as for my peers, well, they could just go to, you know, I didn't care. I, I knew the apathy I knew the popular kids were having parties that I was not invited to. Didn't care. It was me and God, and that was good. Somehow I missed that love your neighbor as yourself thing. Somehow I missed that humility was looking after the interest of others and not just yourself. And, and what the Lord kept reminding me of was, I felt like he said to me, I brought a pastor from New York City who doesn't know any of you. And, and he has spoken this week, and a revival has broken out, and he has cared about your soul, although he does not know you. And here you are, young man, who you know a lot of these students. They're your peers. You eat lunch with them, and you don't care. You don't pray for them. You don't invite them to youth group. You don't speak to them. They're just, they're just people for you to look down on. Party people. Popular people. And that week, I feel like the Lord said that has to change for you. I want you to care about other people's walk, their faith, where they're at. It's not good enough that it's just about you. And that was the week that I, I knew that I was going to go into ministry. And this week, even last night, they, they, they made a CD of what happened. And uh, the CD is just called Revival. And it has testimonies of students. I was listening to it last night. And I was hearing some familiar voices of popular students that I looked down on. And even hearing their voices again on here, even hearing their voices, it brought up all those, those high school memories. And like, ooh, I don't like, I didn't really like that guy. He kind of drove me nuts. He was so full of himself. It brought back all of those self-righteous feelings. And, and then there comes that reminder of, but you were no better. Because everything was about you. Just like everything was about them. And look how I changed things. The Lord reminded me, look what I did. The Lord restored a friendship that I had with uh, um, a guy that I was friends with as a freshman. And, and he started to make really stupid choices. Really immoral choices. And so we drifted apart. But did I go after him? Did I encourage him? Did I challenge him? Did I 
was I a friend? No, I just kind of split. And that week, he got right with the Lord. And so senior year, I got to enjoy this really beautiful, rekindled friendship with a guy that was now following Christ. Things happened that week. And when I was, I went into Bible school after that. Went to Moody Bible Institute, as many of you know. And I think it was during my junior year, maybe even senior year. It was, it was my, the latter part of my time at Moody. And I went to chapel. And I sat amongst the students of Moody Bible Institute. And they introduced the speaker for the day. It was Tom Maharis from New York City. Like, this is the guy. This is the guy. And I don't remember one word he said in that chapel service that day. But I knew at the end I needed to go up to him and say, thank you for answering the call and coming to Peoria, Illinois and sharing with us that week. And even staying in the evening and talking to students and just making yourself available, I don't think that was in the contract. But that's what you did because you cared about us. Thank you. And uh, I don't remember it being some sort of incredible conversation. It was more just like a humble man in front of me saying, I'm just so glad God used me that week. I mean, it wasn't like one of those incredible moments. It was just, it was just the fact that God brought this full circle for me. And like that guy, I want to be that guy. And wherever I go, impact people. And not be so self-centered. Unfortunately, that's been uh, a lifelong problem for me. And uh, still is in some ways. Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 7.14? Second Chronicles seven fourteen. My junior year of high school in Bible class, I had to memorize this verse. I'm guessing that they had us memorize it because what we experienced that that week. And I think it's probably if I asked you to name something in Chronicles, Second Chronicles. This is probably be your go-to verse. This is probably the most well-known verse in the book. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten it. We're in this uh, series called Fortune Cookie Faith. And that is one of those verses that when we think about revival, it's one of the first ones that come to mind. What's the context of this verse? What is this verse talking about? Well, the occasion of God saying this verse to his people Israel is at the dedication of the temple in the time of King Solomon. 
if you remember your biblical history, King David is, you know, David's the guy that beat Goliath, later became king of Israel, and he wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a temple. And God says, no, basically, David, you're a man of war. You're a man of blood. You fought the battles. You faced the giants. It's going to be one of your sons that's going to build my temple in Jerusalem. And so it is, Solomon, the wise king, the king that God says, you can ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And he is the one that's going to build the temple. And Solomon prays this amazing prayer, dedicating the temple of God. And God's presence fills the temple. There's smoke and people are standing in awe of God. They can't believe what's happening. And then God responds to Solomon's prayer. And God says this. And if you have your Bibles open to Second Chronicles 7, I want you to, to get the full context here. Second Chronicles 7, 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heaven so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and, and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you and you go and you serve other gods and worship them, which unfortunately we know he did later on, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you in this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast you out from my sight. I will make it a proverb and a byword amongst all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshipped and served them. Therefore he has brought all this disaster Upon them. And this is the context of Second Chronicles 7.14. And I think the key word that we read, a word that unlocks what this passage means, is in, the, is in verse 18. It is the word covenant. God's people are a covenant people. Israel was a covenant people. And if you look at Deuteronomy, God said clearly, I have set before you life and death. Choose life. If you keep the words of my covenant, my laws, you will have life. If you disobey them, you will have death. You will have a curse. 
you know, in a sense, this is a verse for exiles. This is a verse for when God comes and sends a pestilence onto Israel, and, and, or an army comes in and takes away the people. Number one, then, we put up number one. This is a verse describing God's covenant with His people Israel. So when God says, if my people are called by my name, who are those people? Israel. When God says, you've got to pray to this place, and this place is going to have my presence forever, he's talking about his temple. When he says, I will heal their land, in 2 Chronicles 7.14, he's talking about the land of Israel. This is covenant language for God's covenant people. This is old covenant. I don't want to spend forever on this next point, though. But I do think we have a problem with Second Chronicles 7.14. And this is the problem. Christians sometimes interpret land in this verse to mean America. So I'm going to say, number two, this promise is not for America as a country. I mean, I, I think there's a point where it, it connects to Christians in America, and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. I'm going to get back to that. But... It's not a promise for America. It's a promise for Israel. It's a covenant promise. And I think we need to be very careful when we see the word land and we say, well, that's us. That's us. That's America. And, and, and if Americans would just humble themselves, God would heal this land, this country, because we're this Christian nation. We've got to be really, really careful. And I know I'm going to step on some toes as I say this, but... It's what the text says. Because I don't think America inherits the covenant curses of Israel. And I don't think we inherit the covenant blessings of Israel. And I see no one looking for a pestilence to enter the land or locusts or drought. Um, I want to be careful in how I handle the text. Even how I talk about this because I love my country. And I pray for its revival. When we take Israel's promises and plug them into America as a society, I want to tell you what I think happens. This is my opinion. This is what I think happens. And I'm saying it because I've seen it. When we plug in Israel's promises and give them to America... When a, when a disaster happens in this country, this is what we say. We say, it's this wicked culture's fault. They're bringing disaster upon America. God is judging America, and this is what it is. Because you know, New Orleans is more wicked than the rest of us. And they must have deserved Katrina. Oh, did you hear Christians say that? Did it bother you like it bothered me? I hear some of you giving an audible you know, response right there. I mean, it bothered me. After 9-11, did you hear it? I'm kind of glad I didn't hear it after the wildfires of California, but I bet some people were saying it last year. I bet some people were saying it. That, that when, when something bad happens... The church goes into full Romans 2 mode, which Eric read earlier in the service, and we're like, 
Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. You brought this on us. All of you wicked people brought this on us. And we get our finger out and we condemn. I think that's a byproduct of taking Israel's promises and importing them to America. We've got to be very careful or we become judgmental. We become very, very judgmental. And I don't know anybody maybe that's prophetic enough to say this disaster means this. That wicked city. And apparently Las Vegas is, is taken off of all this, right? Because they're all good right there. Because no disaster has befallen them. Oh, but yeah, then it did. Did we say it for them too? I don't know. I don't know. But far be it for me to condemn. The other thing that happens when uh, we import Israel's promises to America, and I've seen this too, we get so self-righteous, and instead of blaming the culture, we start to blame the church. We start to eat our own. And we say something like this, if only there was a faithful remnant of the church that prayed and could hold off this disaster that's happening to our country. I know full well, and I believe full well, we are in a time of moral revolution in this country. Like, I get it. I see it. You see it. But I know people, and I could call them by name. Unfortunately, I've not met them in this church. I've met them in other churches. Um, and I remember, I remember in certain elections, uh, a man saying to me, if, if the church would have prayed, we wouldn't have got this leader. This person would not have been elected. This is the church's fault. A lot of bitterness that goes with that. A lot of bitterness. And I want to say that carefully because maybe that's where you've been. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in that church. And maybe you put your hope, your living hope, in a political party or person. We don't, church. We don't. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. Nothing less. Nothing else. And so we got to be very careful. And I believe we can be patriotic. I totally believe we can be patriotic and yet make God supreme and not mix up our promises the way some do. I said my piece. We got to be careful. Um. Could have said more. Maybe I won't. Okay, let's keep going. I think there's more important things we need to look at here. Um, what will I say about Second Chronicles 7.14? If it's not a promise for the country of America, what do we do with it? We're the church. We're not ancient Israel. We're not under King Solomon. What's going on here? We've got to remember, all Scripture is God-breathed, Right? All Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All of it's useful. So what do we see in this verse? It's for us as the church. If my people who are called by my name, are you God's people? Are you called by God's name? Then there is something here for you. As an American Christian, there's something here for you. I believe, and I think I can defend, that this verse describes a pattern of renewal, or you could even insert the word revival, 
a pattern of renewal for us to follow as the church. So 2 Chronicles 7.14, you know the commands, right? Um, if you humble yourself, pray, seek my face, and turn from your wicked ways. Humility, prayer, seek God, turn from your wicked ways. Four things. You, you, you see this throughout the entire Bible. This is not just one verse. This is everywhere. I want to show you three places that we see it. Bear with me. I'm going to read a few things. But I want to reinforce this point so you don't forget it. I think it's going to be worth it. Uh, check out Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and to succeed in the thing which I sent it. I see humility. Your thoughts are greater than my thoughts. I see returning to the Lord. Come back to me. I see seeking the Lord. I see it there in Isaiah. This is a pattern. Next verse. Jonah. Okay, how about the wicked city of Nineveh? Jonah comes in there, and, and the king hears that Jonah has declared destruction on the wicked city of Nineveh. So the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth. I see humility. And he sat in ashes. Then he issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Humility. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out, pray, pray to the mightily, to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Forsake your wicked ways. Keep going. Uh, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. There's your second example of humility, prayer, seeking God, and turning from your wicked ways. I got one more for you. This is my favorite. This is like my discovery of the week while I'm studying. It's James. It's James. Check this out. James 4.1. What causes fights and what causes uh, quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You're not praying. Next verse. Uh, you ask, you pray, but you don't receive because you ask wrongly that you may spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Seek God's face. Turn from your wicked ways. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That was my discovery of the week. James 4, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And I, and I just see the parallel right there. This is for the people of God that are called by his name. It is for you. That you would humble yourself and pray and seek God's face and turn from your wicked ways. It's a pattern of renewal. Number four, and finally then. How do you see this? How do you see this in your life? What does this look like, practically speaking? Humility implies, when you humble yourself, we can put that up, humble yourself. Um, when you humble yourself, the word humility, this particular word for humility means to, um, to, to, to be subdued by someone else. To bow the knee to a master. I mean, think about that. If you, just think about this. If you, let me say it like this. It all starts in your heart. It all starts in your heart. You ever had heard somebody admit an embarrassing sin? And they knew they needed to get it out there and confess to a friend and you heard it? And you were like, oh, I don't know that I could ever admit that kind of a sin. Kind of embarrassing. People are going to look down on that person. When, when revival happened in Peoria, Peoria Christian School, we, a month later, I think it was, we went to Champaign to Judah Christian School and led a chapel service there and challenged those students. I don't often talk about this. But there were some people, some students that got up in front of the student body and they confessed some embarrassing sins. We're almost like, you don't want to tell people that. You don't want to tell them that's going on at this school. Don't go there. It takes humility. I mean, you think about it. You get up in the morning. How many of you spend time with the Lord when you start your day? And the reality is you don't. Because what you have to go to is more important than spending time with the Lord. What you have to do during your day, whatever you're rushing out to, is more important in your eyes than being with your Savior. Let's just admit that. And that that's a pride problem. And whatever sin you're dealing with that you won't deal with, especially after we talked about this last week, whatever, whatever you haven't dealt with, it's because your pride won't let you deal with it. You, you won't humble yourself. Revival and renewal starts with me saying, this is not about me. This is for the glory of God. It's not about me. And then you've got to pray. So let's say you realize your day is not more important than your Savior. Whatever great thing you're doing or going to work or important thing you've got going on is not more important than God. You get up and you pray. And this word for prayer, there's different words for prayer. There's like ten different Hebrew words for prayer. This one emphasizes intercession. I'm interceding on behalf of other people. Suppose you started praying for yourself that revival would begin in your own heart. You started praying for other people that, that God would renew them. What would you see happen? As I was studying this week, let me tell you how discouraged I was. I made the mistake of looking up former students of mine from youth ministry years and seeing how they were doing. 
Some of them not so well. Some of them post, one of them that I invested in heavily, one-on-one, come to my house, I come to yours, has the most anti-church, anti-Christian things to say on his Facebook profile. And I'm like, did my investment mean nothing? And I know the college response. I know the Bible school response. Give it another decade. You know, that's what they tell you basically in class. That, that, that your investment may take a decade to pay off. Or more. Or maybe it's when they get married and start having kids and realize, wow, I've got to make some changes. And that may still be for that young man and others like him. And so we pray. We intercede for others. Uh, thirdly, uh, we seek God's face. Uh, Old Testament people didn't want to see God's face because it might melt their face, you know, or however you want to say it. You know, you don't see God's face and live. Not a good thing. But seeking God's face implies I want to be in his presence and enjoy it. I, I, want, I want to enjoy the joy. The peace, maybe you've had a dinner sometime with an important person in your life and you've sat across from them, and maybe you hadn't seen their face in a while, and just seeing them look at you felt so good because you were in their presence. Do you have that time, that personal time with the Lord where you just get to enjoy being with Him, to open His Word and just, just be with Him and seek His face? To know what he looks like in the sense that you know his joy, his peace, what he wants for you. Do do you have that sense that you start your day and it's not that you say to God, God, you can join my agenda today. But instead you say something like, God, let me be on your agenda today. Let me do what you want today. May I be about your business today because my business might not be important at all. What I've got may not be important at all. Or, or maybe that just need to be more mindful of you interacting with me throughout the day. But I want to be on your agenda. Seek God's face. Fourthly, turn from your wicked ways. After last week's sermon, if you haven't listened to it, you should. Um, that you would say, I'm repenting. I'm turning from my sinfulness I'm getting right. I'm confessing to a friend. I'm making it public. I'm humbling myself and making it known. This has to stop in my life. I need accountability. I need help. But I can't do this anymore. I can't keep this private. I can't make it personal. I, I need to come out with this. I need to change. May it never be that we do this stuff and we say, okay, That's revival. Because you can do this stuff, but it's God who revives the heart. It's God that renews the heart. Can I ask you three questions? What would it look like if God renewed the Northwoods? What would that look like? Would you just think about that for a second? What would that look like if God did an amazing work of renewal and revival here? I just told you what it looks like when he does it at a school, a Christian school. It involves students getting up out of their chairs and coming down to the floor and taking a microphone and confessing their sin. 
It's people that said they were Christians for years. And they even put it on their application to get into the school, because you had to be a Christian to get into the school, realizing I'm not really a Christian. I just talked to a pastor this week that said, I was pastoring a church, but I was not a Christian. You know, I mean, that happens. How many of you are here and you would say, I'm a Christian, but you're really not because you really haven't given your life to Christ? How many of you? What would it look like if God did this in the Northwoods? What would it look like if God did this in our church? That he changed the landscape of this place. And it just looked different. It looked more passionate. Things happened that we couldn't explain. Miracles. What would that look like here? I think about that. But I know that this last question is where it's all at. Because this is where it all starts. What would it look like if God renewed you? That's where it begins. Revival starts with you. And and the revival that I experience, I know I'm going into overtime here, but I hope you're, you're hearing my words. The year before... There was a missionary group of students from Peoria Christian School that were on a missions trip in Russia, and they prayed deep into the night for revival for their school. And there was a group of teachers that were praying faithfully for revival for their school. And God did it. God did it. There's a human responsibility here in Second Chronicles 7.14, if we do these things, and there's a divine responsibility, you can't make the wind blow. But when his spirit comes upon you, you know it. You see the miracle. So let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been through a mass revival, somewhat similar to what I just described this morning, a group of people that you felt like were revived? I see one, two, Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. Um, you know what I'm talking about. And if you've been through it once, maybe you've asked yourself, why isn't it happening here? Why isn't it happening here? It bothers me. Because, you know, God doesn't do stuff like that anymore, right? Why isn't it happening here? Second question. How many of you would say that there was a point in your life where you claimed some sort of faith, but it was dead? You were dead. You were apathetic. You didn't care. And God did a revival in your heart and you went from darkness to light. And God changed everything. And it was miraculous. How many of you? I like those numbers better. I, I don't know. I, I want to see revival on a bigger scale. I mean, I, I pray for that, I long for that, I want that. But I know this. God does miracles every single day. And it starts with you renewing yourself through humility, prayer, 
seeking God's face and turning from your wicked ways. And you will see it happen. And we may bring the person on the stage and say, look what God has done. We may take them into the waters of baptism and say, look what God has done. Or maybe nobody knows, really. But you know. You saw it. You were involved with it. You saw that person go from darkness to light. You saw your own soul come alive as God quickened you. That is a miracle. Only God can do that. And yet we have a responsibility that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. I, I don't know. I don't know. If you need personal revival, I, I, I don't, I don't know that we're going to see something happen right now in front of the whole church here, but if you need revival and God's doing something in your heart and he said it this morning, could I ask after the service that you would come up and I'm going to stay in the front. I'm not going to shake hands. I'm going to stay in the front. And maybe if Ian, if you can come up here and maybe a few of our elders can come up and we can pray for you. And let's see God do a miracle today in your heart. I don't know. But I know God is still doing this. We're going to pray and be dismissed now. Thank you for staying. I know it's hot. Thank you for staying. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite people forward that want prayer. Lord Jesus, as we go today, I, I just know that there's got to be somebody that is feeling dead inside and that you want to renew today. And that heard this and knows this is them. And so I pray that you would give them courage to come forward today. And receive whatever it is you want to give. Lord, I know there's those of us that renew ourselves every day. We're with you. We're praying for others. We're about your business. And I pray for them that they would not become discouraged when they don't see fruit right away, this year, next year, ten years. That we would not give up on people. Lord, renew us for the task we have in front of us. To make disciples, to call people, to love people, to humble ourselves and make this life about you and others more than it ever is about us. May we not rush into our day. May we rush to you. I can't think of how many times I read in the Psalms about the psalmist meeting with you in the morning. 
I've got to think there's something to that. Before we get rolling, may there be some that start a lifelong habit of meeting with you instead of rushing towards their day. And Father, I pray you would do a great renewing work for this church in general. And that we'd see your spirit do mighty things. So Lord, as we go, we know you go with us. Please keep guiding us and may you be exalted in all things. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed except for those that are invited forward. Please come forward.